is WNRI's Upfront. The opinions expressed represent those only of the panel and callers and do not reflect the views of WNRI and its owners. Telephone lines are now open at 7690600. And now, let's join the Upfront panel. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Upfront program for this Thursday. I'm Roger, and I'm here uh, every day. And today, uh, our uh, co-host is uh, Christopher Boulay, and he's in studio. And uh, he got on the uh, the phone and uh, set up a guest for us today. And we welcome that guest, uh, a familiar face. Good morning, Chris. How's it going over there? Good morning, Roger. Good morning, listeners. It's great. It feels like I haven't been here since Tuesday morning. Yes, it's been a while. This is terrific. Um, As we've moved on to doing a couple times a week, a lot of it's been open uh, conversation, having calls in. And today we have a special guest, so we're going a little bit of a different direction. However, as we were talking in the green room, I think this is your 10th visit up here with us. So very happy to have Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Neroner. So welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be back with you. And in Woonsocket, I always like coming up here and, and talking to you guys and your listeners. And we also recognize that you really want to be here because it's an hour commute from Jamestown. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get to get ready. I got an hour to get ready on my way in. So try to get uh, my thoughts squared away and, and be ready to share them with you. There's so many topics to discuss. As always, you could be coming every week and there'd be new topics. But right now, um, a lot of uh, Discussion that you've discussed have been very, very involved in the sale of the hospitals of Fatima and Roger Williams. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think I've done more research than, than most on it. And, and uh, you've really helped Rhode Island and those hospitals avoid a, a financial bullet. And we can get into that maybe more detail since we have a, a whole 45-minute show. But could you kind of set the framework for people who know about it and don't know about it because we want to kind of unpeel this onion because you really did a, a fantastic job. Well, thanks, Chris. You know, we have a good team at the office, and they worked hard on this one. So um, I will try to break it down because it is a complicated situation. So there are two Rhode Island hospitals. One is Roger Williams Medical Center, and the other is Our Lady of Fatima. They are owned uh, by a company out in California called Prospect Medical Holdings. Prospect is owned itself by uh, really two ownership groups. 60% of it is owned by a company called Leonard Green Equity Partners. That's a private equity firm. They invest money in big companies, and they try to make money by investing in big companies. The other uh, ownership group are two individuals. So those two individuals are, t- are guys, uh, two guys named uh, David Topper and Sam Lee. So the proposed transaction, the, what we were reviewing was... Uh, Mr. Lee and Mr. Topper wanted to buy Leonard Green's 60% interest. Leonard Green had 60% of Prospect, and Lee and Topper had 40%. So uh, Lee and Topper wanted to buy that 60% of, of Leonard Green. And so for them to be able to do that, they needed, they needed our approval. So meaning the Attorney General's approval and the Department of Health's approval. They're separate, but we both had to approve it. So as part of that review process, it took about a year. We wanted, we wanted to be able to understand how um, how Prospect as owned now 100% by Mr. Lee and Mr. Topper, how that would how that new entity, uh, that new company now owned by two different two people in its entirety, what their relationship would be with our Rhode Island hospitals, and that was really important for this reason that our Rhode Island hospitals need to be supported financially uh, by Prospect out in California. If they're not covering the operating losses with our two Rhode Island hospitals and not paying for the capital expenditures they need every year, then our hospitals won't make it. So let me say that again. 
there are two critical things that every hospital needs. It needs to cover its operating losses if there are there if there are any. They either make money or they don't. If they're running at a loss, someone's got to make up that that delta, that figure, that loss. And then every year, a hospital needs to invest in capital expenditures. What does that mean? They may need to renovate an emergency room. They may need to buy new equipment. Um, they may need to upgrade its um, its uh, you know air conditioning or heating systems. You got to invest in any any facility like that. And and again for the last Last five years and more, those expenses have been paid by Prospect Medical Holdings out in California. So we wanted to make sure that Prospect Medical Holdings would continue to be able to uh, support our local hospitals. When we dove into the finances, what we learned was this. The Prospect Medical Holdings, having bought those hospitals in 2014, was not in the same place financially today as they were back then. They were in a much weakened position. I'll be specific. In 2017, they had $67 million in net assets. So they were $67 million positive in 2017. In 2020, they were $1.2 billion negative. They had $1.2 billion in net liabilities. So that was a real red flag for us. If we need prospect to us financially support our Island hospitals and they are no longer in a good financial position, certainly nowhere near as good as they were in 2017, then I got to make sure that our Island hospitals going forward have the ability to meet their operating expenses and also make the necessary investments in the facility because if they don't do that, they can't provide health care here and those two hospitals are really important. So as a condition of my approval of that sale, uh, we did a bunch of things, but, but first and foremost, we required um, uh, Leonard Green, uh, who's trying to get out, and Mr. Lee and Mr. Topper, to put $80 million in escrow now. It's already there. That money is in the account right now as we speak. That is now out of their hands and in the hands of a trustee who will only only operate at our direction, meaning my direction, to deliver that money if if the new entity, the new prospect owned by Lee and Topper, don't pay those operating losses if necessary and make those $72 million in capital expenditures that we believe are necessary over the next five years. So we've, we've made those hospitals more secure today, far more secure, frankly, than they were uh, two days ago. And, and, and the notion of putting $80 million in an escrow that, again, can't be reached by prospect, that's there for these hospitals no matter what happens. That is unprecedented in, unprecedented in Rhode Island and I believe unprecedented around the country. So I feel like we're in a good place. I want to mention one more thing, Chris. It's really important that, our, that your listeners know this. That um, the other thing that really concerned me was um, the way... The, the you know people ask well how did they get there how did they get to be 1.2 billion dollars uh, to the bad what prospect did what leonard green and mr lee and mr topper did was they took out a big loan back in 18 uh over a billion dollars uh, of of, uh, of of a loan and put 457 million dollars in their own pockets Okay, that's how they made money on this transaction. It wasn't by running a great healthcare system. It was by taking out a big loan and pocketing, you know, a little less than half of the money. They then, to pay off some of that indebtedness around the country, they owned 17 hospitals. They sold 14, 14 of them off and leased them back. Not our Rhode Island hospitals, but they lease those hospitals back. So now you don't own your assets. So you're, again, you're in a weaker financial position. What's, what was critically important to me was there's another $100 million note that was due next July. And our hospitals, Fatima and Roger Williams, could be sold and leased back. And that would have put those hospitals in a place that's worse 
then than they are today. Again, if you don't own your house, if you're leasing your house, you are not as in a good position as you would be otherwise. So we got them off that note as well. So that's where we are today. I, I really strongly believe that the hospitals are in a much more secure place. Um, and uh, we'll go forward from here. Mr. Attorney General, has it always been the domain of the Attorney General to uh, oversee ownership changes of places like hospitals? Or is this something that came in in the last 10 years? It's, it's come in relatively recently, Roger. The Hospital Conversion Act was, was passed over a decade ago, but, but not too much more than that. The, the real question, you know, I think for all of us as regulators, myself and the Department of Health, is how active we're going to be in doing our job. You know, it, it has become really clear to me over the years that when you are in one of these positions, or really being the, the safeguard for the public, that you've got to ask a lot of tough questions, and you've got to be prepared to take a tough negotiating position if necessary to make sure that Rhode Islanders are well served. I mean, this was a tough fight. There's no question about it. As you can imagine, Leonard Green walking away from a transaction, and Mr. Lee and Mr. Topper had no interest in putting $80 million in escrow for these hospitals. But I felt that was necessary, and that's what we accomplished here. But I think it's important to note that there were other states that did not do the same due diligence as you and your office did. They kind of passed on it. Um, not that you want to criticize anyone else, mm. but you did focus on the fact that, to me, you know, I don't know if this is hyperbole, but without the intervention, these hospitals probably would have collapsed within a couple of years. Well, look, you know, our, Chris, our financial expert, you know, forecasted a liquidity crisis within the next 18 to 24 months. You know what that is. You know, <laughs> you understand numbers and finance. I know you do too, Roger. So that was a real alarm bell for me. And so that's why we needed this money in cash up front so that if there is a liquidity crisis for prospect if there is a if there is a problem we know the money's there to keep these hospitals going look prospect will get the money back if they keep their commitments if they make the investments if they cover any operating losses over time with my approval they'll get the money back so to me it was pretty fair you've made these commitments i'm just going to hold them to you and as security i want the money up front i'm not going to rely on promises alone how close do you think Prospect came to just walking away from the deal and having the two hospitals close? Because initially, uh, you wanted more like $150 million, yeah. and you agreed to $80 million. Yeah. So obviously, there's some negotiation. Yeah. Um, Sheen was obviously involved with that. Where, 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 what's your gut reaction on that? Yeah, so let me, let me address that in a couple of ways. First of all, in our initial decision that we would have issued, had they not withdrawn their initial uh, application, uh, the number would have been $120 million. So how do we get from $120 million to $80 million? So there are a couple of things. First of all, at the time um, that we made our initial decision of $120 million, they quite candidly were not negotiating with me. They didn't want to put any money in. And when I'm in that situation, I'm gonna, when I'm going through a calculation as to how much money we need, I'm going to err on the high side. You know, so we were looking at, looking back five years, you know, what were they spending on operating expenses or what were their operating losses and what were they making in capital expenditures? What did they need to make? So we looked back five years. We took that number and we extrapolated it forward five years and we rounded. And that's, that's how we got to that $120 million number. When they came in um, uh, after they withdrew their application, um, the point of that was for them to convince me what they believe the number should be. And so as a part of that process... Um, you know, we found a few things like we were double counting depreciation, for example. But importantly, importantly, um, 
one thing that we did was they were charging, uh, Prospect National was charging our local hospitals $7 million in management fees. So they're no longer going to be able to charge them those management fees. Now, if you extrapolate that out, $7 million times five is $35 million. So if you put $35 million on top of 80, you're at around 115 in net value. So the number in the end isn't all that different. What was critical to me was what's the dollar amount we need uh, to keep uh, to keep these hospitals going in the way that will serve Rhode Islanders well over the uh, over the next five years. That was $80 million. Operating expenses, capital investments, and that's how we got to that $80 million number in the end. Now, you asked, what was the real threat of closing these hospitals? Look, I would have fought that until my last breath. Okay, so what was the likelihood? I don't think it was that great. I think that was... Uh, you know, I don't want to get, try to get inside their heads, but if they thought that that was going to intimidate me or my office, that was not going to happen. Uh, as I said at the time, um, I think we had a really good case. Uh, I continue to believe that for the conditions we imposed. Um, uh, we didn't pull any punches in our decision. We laid, we laid out exactly why we were doing what we were doing. And as I said, had they gone ahead and tried to close those hospitals, um, I would have fought that very aggressively. Uh, not, not to delve too much into the numbers, but one more thing. Did you think the $7 million per annum was egregious? Yeah, look, you know, um, let me put it this way. I didn't, I didn't feel like, um, as a matter of delivering value... That that $7 million in, in management fees, quote-unquote, from the national entity was, was warranted or necessary. And that's why we insisted it didn't, you know. So it's one of two things. You can either cover that $7 million and we can make our number 115. Or you can not charge them that $7 million mm-hmm. a year and we can make the number 115. It doesn't really matter. We took it out as opposed to making them cover it. Uh, the bottom line was I didn't think that ought to come out of the money that these hospitals are spending to take care of Rhode Islanders. That was not a good use of that money in that way, in my view. As we move off of that topic to other topics, is there anything else our listeners should know uh, in terms of transaction? Obviously, we want to peel it away and try to keep it at a high level, but clearly when you have numbers like that, there's a lot of moving parts oh, yeah. that have to be explained. But is there anything else that... Uh, no, I, look, I don't think so. I think that those are the high points. If you, you know, Look, it's a hundred and some odd page decision. Uh, the conditions go on, and they're, you know, we've got three different kinds of escrows. They total $80 million. It's pretty complicated. People can read everything on the website. We actually have a PowerPoint that I did for the for the press conference I did, which kind of breaks it all out. You can access that through our, our website. But now I, I, think, I think if there's one takeaway for me, it's two things. Number one, the people of the state, particularly the ones who use those hospitals, Roger Williams and Fatima, can know that those hospitals are going to be there for them for the foreseeable future. That's number one. And there was some real doubt about that, in my view, uh, before, before this agreement. The second thing is, the second thing is, is that the people who provide those services, uh, the doctors, the nurses, the professional staff of those hospitals, will know that those jobs are going to be there and those hospitals will be well supported because we've insisted on it over the next five years. And I think that's a really good takeaway for them, and, and they should uh, they should feel some comfort in that. And and um, I don't want to ignore this because it's really important. They now know that they won't wake up next summer and find out that their hospitals have been sold uh, and leased back. Um, next summer, that, that that risk has also been taken away. So I think they can they can feel better about the state of things today. Look, healthcare. I'm I'm not I'm saying all this. I'm not suggesting that healthcare as a whole doesn't have real challenges. You know, no matter what hospital you are today, there are challenges that need to be need to be addressed. But for these two hospitals, uh, at this point, we're in a better place today than we were a few days ago. Um, I had one more question. I said I didn't. Should should companies that are like Leonard Green and private equity be in the hospital business? Is is that a, just a bad fit? 
Yeah, look, you know, uh, somebody asked me yesterday or the day before, you know, at, at the at the press conference, you seem aggravated. And were you you were you aggravated or were you happy where you ended up? And I said, look, I'm happy where I ended up, but I don't like at all how we got there. I don't like I don't like somebody in the healthcare business who's making money not off running a good healthcare system, but by taking out a, a debt, a loan, and putting the money in your pocket and saddling the hospitals with debt, and then selling those hospitals and leasing them back. In my view, when you take on a healthcare. Um, operation. You, you owe a duty to the people you serve mm-hmm. to keep those things running well. You you have in your hands people's health. Look, I think whenever you take over a company, you should try to run that company well. You know, if for nothing else, then for the people who work there. But healthcare is very different from running you know a sporting goods company. As Leonard Green has run, they run the you know they run the container store. You know they they. The way they operate is they take over the boards of these businesses, and then they effectively run them. But when you do that with a healthcare company, and that healthcare company uh, is doing business in Rhode Island, then I, I can, you know, I want to assure your listeners and, and you guys that as an office, my office is going to be looking um, at those uh, at those companies very closely to make sure that they care as much about healthcare as we do. And if they don't, they really shouldn't be doing healthcare in Rhode Island or, in my view, anywhere else. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Neroner. And wanted to switch gears a, a little bit about a local case that probably more people can get their hands around. Um, the headline, I think, in the Providence Journal says, Defense asked judge to dismiss race, racial rant against South Kingstown woman. Yeah. So it appears that um, a uh, black couple went into a uh, prominent restaurant and somebody kind of just went off the rails and started... Um, <laughs> doing racial epithets and making them feel unwelcome. And the, the attorney general office decided to upgrade that to a hate crime. Mm-hmm. And now the judge, the, um, the other side, the lawyer saying, defense saying, it was a bad uh, decision for her to do. It was very terrible uh, behavior, but it didn't rise to the level of a hate crime. Yeah. But obviously your office feels differently. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about what a hate crime is in Rhode Island. So, and there's a lot of confusion about this, and I understand why that is. Hate crime is really not is not the right word to use. The first thing we have to establish in any case is was a crime committed. So, was it an assault with a dangerous weapon? Was it a simple assault? Was it a disorderly conduct? Was it a robbery? Okay. You have to prove a crime. And then if we can also prove that the crime was motivated by hate or bias, because this is under Rhode Island law, I'm not making this up, there is a statute under Rhode Island law that says if that crime, that robbery, that assault, that disorderly conduct, that assault with a dangerous weapon was motivated by hate or bias, then there's a sentencing enhancement. So it's not a hate crime, it's a hate sentencing enhancement. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you're enti- you are subject to an additional penalty if after you're convicted of the crime, um, if your crime was motivated by hate or bias. Why, why did the General Assembly pass that law? Look, I'm not in the General Assembly, but I support the passages of that law. Because but what, they, what they did when they passed it was recognizing that crimes when they're motivated by that kind of hater bias has a greater impact not only on the individual who's victimized, but on us as a society. We want to discourage that kind of uh, hatred uh, and bias. So let's, let's get into the case that you brought up. Uh, the case is pending before a judge. The judge has got to make a decision on that case. We may have to try it in front of a jury because in any district court case, it's a misdemeanor. The charge is disorderly conduct. Um, if the, case, if the uh, defendant is convicted, they have a right to appeal to superior court. We may be trying that case in front of a jury. So I have to be careful about mm-hmm. what I say at this point. Mm-hmm. But let me say this. 
as alleged, uh, the defendant uh, uh, was in a restaurant. Uh, there was a family of four of color who wanted to eat in that restaurant. Like lots of families of four. I'm a family of four. You may, I think you're a family of four, right? Yeah. Families of four go out all the time. When you're going out to eat, what you hope to have is a pleasant day with your family in a restaurant, hopefully have good food, get great service, relax, and enjoy a family interaction. This family didn't have that experience, as alleged in this case. In this case, mother, father, and two daughters were confronted by somebody telling them they didn't belong in that restaurant because of the color of their skin. Okay? So let's back up. What's the charge? The charge is disorderly conduct. Okay? Now, we have to establish in that case that this person engaged in disorderly conduct in that restaurant. It doesn't matter why they did it. It just we have to establish that they did. Okay? So if you were to walk in any restaurant in, in Woonsocket and start yelling and shouting, you hate the Red Sox, hate the Patriots, all of you stink in this restaurant, get out all of you, you might get charged with disorderly conduct under those circumstances. If, that, if we were to prove that in that case, and then we were able to prove that the reason why you did it was because of the color of somebody's skin, okay, or some other, uh, other prejudice, then you, having been convicted, are now subject to a sentencing enhancement because of why you did it. So that's what the case is about. The case, in that case that we're talking about, we first have to prove that the person committed disorderly conduct. She has a right to a trial. That's what's going on now. She'll either be convicted or she won't. If she is convicted by the judge of committing an act of disorderly conduct, leave out why she did it. Then, if we can prove that she did it because of race prejudice or bias or any anything else, then she's subject to an additional penalty. So, look, defense attorneys say what defense attorneys say. That's what they do. Okay, mm -hmm. no, no disrespect. That's what they do. In any case, we look at, and particularly in a case like this one, we look, was a crime committed? What motivated it? If motivated it is subject to the, uh, the hate sentencing enhancement under Rhode Island law, then we're going to bring it because we think it's important for us to do our job and do that. So that, in a nutshell, is what that case is about. And I would say that nobody I personally know values equal protection under law more than you do. So the $64 million question would be if that place was predominantly black. And a white couple walked in there and received exactly the same treatment. People want to know, would the attorney general's office treat that as a hate crime as well? Of course. Yeah, look, of course. Look, you know, of course, Chris. You know, we, um, we're not making value judgments about what, you know, what race case, what race based crime should be charged and shouldn't be charged based on which race is involved. If your crime is motivated by prejudice, doesn't matter what it is, what kind of prejudice it is, as long as it's covered by the statute, and the statute says race, doesn't say a particular kind of race, then we're going to bring that enhancement. And we, and we have done that. Uh, we've, we've brought a few cases around about that, uh, on, that, um, on that same theory around the state, and we're going to continue to do that because I think it's important that we do. And then finally on, on that, and these are issues outside of the, your jurisdiction in Rhode Island, but people will look at it on the conservative side and say, well, geez, um, people are in Brooklyn restaurant having dinner and Black Lives Matter folks come and terrorize them and because of their race and nothing is being done in the prosecution. You know, you may want to just nod and not, you know, acknowledge, you know, because it's not in Rhode Island, but that's where people get a little frustrated and get a little bit defensive and say, okay, that's really, you know, that's a hate crime too and, and they're getting a pass. Yeah, well, you know, look. Um, I can't. I can't respond to people who say things in social media or or talking about Brooklyn. Let me yeah. say this. Let me just say this. As alleged in this case, 
Put yourselves in the shoes of that mother, father, and their two daughters mm-hmm. standing outside a restaurant, looking a little different from everybody else in the restaurant, and having that being brought to everybody's attention in that, in that way as alleged. Put yourself in the shoes of that family, and then ask yourself whether you'd want your attorney general to do something about it. I think you would. Yeah, and then there's also the sense of finally you would hope that we're past those days, that those that 40, 50, 60 years ago and no longer would be repeated. I'm going to switch gears. you want to take a break? I just wanted to ask uh, if the judge today, being Thursday, I guess um, dismisses it mm-hmm. um, on First Amendment, uh, yeah. what, what did your office do at that point? Well, that's the end of the case. Now, remember, Roger, he's going to be deciding whether or not a disorderly conduct, right? He's going to be deciding today whether disorderly conduct was committed or not. So that really has nothing to do with what motivated it. The first thing the judge has to decide is, was a crime committed? If he decides, if he dismisses a case today, it's not because of why they, she did it, the defendant did it. It's because, in his view, going into a restaurant and making loud statements, words, I mean, whether you're yelling fire or whether you're yelling I hate the patriots or whether you're yelling something that's race-based, that alone isn't a crime. It doesn't matter what it was. That's what's going to get dismissed. We won't get to the issue of what motivated her until he convicts her, if he does, of the disorderly conduct. So you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. We, we won't get to why she did it until, we've, until the fact of the words, regardless of what their content was, it was in fact a disorderly conduct. Right? So remember, that's, that's critical here. The first question is, no matter what the defendant said, forget about what she said, is the fact that she acted the way she did, the tone of her voice... The shouting, as alleged, was that a disorderly conduct? I think you make a hell of a case that it is. It'd be hard, for, from my standpoint, we'll as, a, as a layperson, we'll not see, an look, attorney. You know, it's not my job to deliver the verdict. That's the job of a judge or a jury. I said, man, I can't control that. Look, I've learned over the years that I cannot control what the judge is going to do, what a jury is going to do. Trust me, guys, I can't do that. What I try to do is, with the team, is size up. Is this an important case? Are the principles here ones that we should try to vindicate? Um, can we do this in a way that, in my view, is consistent with the law? Doesn't mean I'm always right, but am I, am I, do I really believe, do I strongly believe it's consistent with the law? Under those circumstances, we're going to go forward. At the end of the day, it's the judge or the jury that makes the final call, and I can accept that. We'll be back. Wright's Dairy Farm and Bakery is up next. Wright's Dairy Farm and Bakery announces we are now open and back to normal. Visit us any day of the week for your favorite local products, including milk, cream, assorted pastries, ice cream, cakes, and more. Visit our website, wrightsdairyfarm.com, for all the latest information. Wright's Dairy Farm and Bakery thanks you for your patience over the last year. But now, we're happy to announce that we are open for business as usual. The store will be open for in-person shopping, and we will discontinue our car hop service. Wright's Dairy Farm and Bakery, 201 Woonsocket Hill Road, North Smithfield. You can call us at 767-3014. Open seven days a week, but we'll be glad to see you in person now. At the CPA firm of Kayer Kosher, we believe in the value of relationships. We view every client relationship like a partnership and truly believe that our success is a result of your success. We're committed to providing close personal attention to our clients. We take pride in giving you the assurance that the personal assistance you receive comes from years of advanced training and technical experience. Dedicated and trusted for over 30 years. For Kayer Kosher, certified public accountants with offices in Warwick at 732-8900 and Woonsocket at 766-8100.
Time out for Champs Liquor Circuitway, 481 Clinton Street, Woonsocket. Champs reintroduces Flip Flop Wines, a California winery that has crafted a variety of wines that are fun, fruit-flavored, with amazing taste. Listen to what we have. Two bottles of Flip Flop for $10, including Cabernet, Merlot, Pink Moscato, Regular Moscato, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, and again, two bottles for $10, mix and match. Still on sale? Tisdale Wines from California with six varieties including Pinot Grigio, Merlot, Cabernet, White Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and Moscato Choices. And yes, it's two bottles for $10. Share in life's endless possibilities with Tisdale Vineyard's quality wine experiences at Champs Lucas or Keyway. And we continue the best price in town on Bud and Bud Light, 30-pack, $26.47 plus tax. Hours of convenience from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. Yes, for a great selection of beer, wine, and spirits, you can count on Champs Liquors, 481 Clinton Street, Woonsocket. Have a question? We're always there to answer you at 765-1800. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. Thursday edition Upfront program here on WNRI, and we are visiting with the Attorney General. Chris Boulay is here. Chris, what's going on next? Yes, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Nerona. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Roger. We're moving on to uh, another issue in the South County, which affects, you know, the, the Attorney General's office, the way you look at that. Um, we have uh, a parent who's been asking quite a bit of, about critical race theory in South Kingstown. And um, I don't know if anyone knows that law more than you do. And unfortunately, Woonsocket knows it pretty well because we've uh, stepped in it a few times with, with your office and, and, uh, and Peter Kilmartin. So this person has filed quite a bit of uh, information. The question is, did she abuse the law? And now they're looking at the fact of suing her. And I think it's an important case because your office wants to uphold public information, and I think it's uh, just as interesting a case as uh, the last one we spoke about. Yeah, so um, just to set the context, um, there, are, there, there is in Rhode Island these open government laws, and, and they really have two components. One is open uh, meetings, which means if you have a public body has a meeting, then it has to be open to the public, and you have to set an agenda, and you have to file minutes, and um, and there are lots of rules around conducting a public meeting in a way so that the public can see what's going on, see how their government is working. So that's open meetings. The other component is public records. So if a record is public, then the public has a right to see that record. And, there, you know, the statutes are fairly complicated. There are some exceptions where you can not, with, with, uh, not turn over records and there. Um, and that kind of thing. Although the baseline is, the presumption is records are public. And only if they are fit into one of these exceptions can you withhold it as a government body. My office um, acts, you know, that is one area where we do act as the judge. So if, if let's say, the city of Woonsocket um, uh, is, uh, gets from a citizen a request for certain documents from the city clerk's office or the, the public utility division or whatever, Department of Public Works, um, and the city uh, turns over records or doesn't turn over records or turns over some and not others, then the citizen has a right if they feel like, or the resident has a, has a or anybody, not just a resident, um, if the person who's looking for the information feels like they didn't get what they're entitled to, then they can file a complaint with my office. And my, my office is then the judge over, over reviewing that issue. So we have to decide who's right, the city of Woonsocket 
or the person who's looking for information. So, um, so that puts me in the role of a judge, which makes it even harder for me to talk about individual cases because the dispute you're talking about, Chris, involves a, um, a person who's seeking information from the South County School Committee, as I understand it, um, and uh, the school committee um, has some concerns um, about the number of requests she allegedly filed, and I don't know whether their whether their issue is with the content of what she's filed. But eventually, if it hasn't reached my office already, plainly it will, because there is a dispute there between the school committee and this person. And so, what we'll have to do, as the um, as the attorney general's office open government unit, is issue a decision as to whether the person is entitled to the information or not. That has nothing to do with what kind of information she's seeking. Mm -hmm. So whether it's about critical race theory or how many trucks are being operated by the school committee does not matter to us. What matters is whether or not the documents or the information she's seeking uh, is something she's entitled to under the Access to Public Records Act. Um, and that's something that we'll, I expect we'll have to do uh, going forward. And so when that comes in, that team does a great job uh, and they'll apply the law. And then what happens after that just to play it all the way through if if the per, if whoever whoever loses before us so we could we could order the the city let's go back to the woodsocket example because that's just a hypothetical we could order the city to turn over more records or we could tell the resident or the person who wants the information no nope, you're not entitled to that whoever loses with before us can then go to court and see if the court will give them a different result we had a very interesting uh, open meetings uh, issue maybe a month ago, less than a month ago in the city council in Socket. Uh, mayor McKee has sent a representative uh, to the city council and the mayor erred on the side of caution because it wasn't the same person, it was the same topic, but he sent a different person and her public comments was that would be a violation of the open meeting laws and I thought I guess there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of concern about how to apply it and your office goes out of the way to educate uh, yeah. officials about it so that, that I thought that was a, a real stretch um, but if that's the kind of fear that this is creating, it's probably time to educate these people a little bit more. Yeah, look, so we do a summit every year. We, we did it in, we do it in person. I think we're doing it again in person this summer, I believe, although it could be virtual again. I should, I should know the answer to that, and I will get it. But we do an annual training in the summer every year. Um, and in fact, if you're, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain um, that if you are a person responsible for responding to open meeting or access to public record requests, I'm not reasonably confident. I am confident. You have to certify that you've had training. So everyone has to go through the training who's responsible for this. So we do an annual summit um, right after an election. We will do um, training because we know there are now new public officials mm -hmm. right after an election. So we do right after the uh, right in usually after the first of the year, after people are sworn in in an election year, we'll do trainings. And then our op open government unit um, is available for questions all the time. Now, we don't give advice on particular cases, so we can't tell you, yes, you got to turn this over, or no, you don't. City or town should go to its uh, city solicitor or town solicitor for that. But what we can do, both for, for, for cities and towns and the public, is say, look, this is what the law generally requires. Um, this is what you may want to consider. And so we try to give them guidance as to how to think about the issues they have. Look, we, our view, whether it's someone seeking information from my office... Or because sometimes we get public record requests ourselves, um, is to turn over the information, um, and that's what I say to them when I go down to the trainings and usually open them up. It's like, look, when you have a choice between turning it over and not turning it over, the statute requires you to turn it over. When in doubt, turn it over. The public is going to be better served, and at the end of the day, you'll be served the best as a public official if you turn things over if you can, because. 
transparency, transparency really breeds confidence in government, and that's what we all should be trying to achieve. Yeah, I've had one in 20 years with the city of Woonsocket looking at some of the, some of the pension funds, and I got the information on, in a very, very timely manner. Uh-huh. Looks like we have a, a call. Yeah, we have a call. Put your earphones on right. here and uh, so you can hear the caller, and let's see if we can get a, a question from you. Hello there. What do you uh, want to ask the Attorney General? Are you there, sir? Hello. Yes, you're Good morning. Question. Yes. Good morning, Mr. Naroni. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Good morning to I you, I have too. one question on that <clears throat> that uh, verbal assault in uh, Narragansett. Um, does anyone know the background? Was it a woman that did it? Uh, the defendant is a woman, yes. Yeah. But does anyone know her background? Has she ever done this before? Uh, to me, it seems in this day and age to assault people based on their their race uh, is definitely uh, out of order. But uh, to me, it seems it could be a person who has mental problems. Has that been considered? Well, look, I think, you know, just generally speaking, and I, I don't want to talk too much about the case because it's still ongoing and, and I have a responsibility, ethical responsibility, to let this, the case play out. But but issues um, involving uh, what might have uh, caused uh, a defendant in any case uh, to act the way they did is something that's taken up if they're convicted at sentencing. So, so I'll give you an example. So let's say somebody committed a crime and they did it because they have mental health issues, as you bring up, and that's an, an ex- a great thing to bring up because we see that sometimes. In fact, we see it. We see it too often. Or somebody, uh, somebody committed a crime because um, you know they have an alcohol have an alcohol problem. You know, you'll hear that a lot from defense attorneys. Um, that look, you know, this was they were they were ha- they were a good person having a bad day. And sometimes that's true. You know, depending on the crime they committed, that has more of an, more of an impact on sentence or not. But that kind of question as to as to what's going on in their lives that may have caused them to to have a bad a particularly bad day when over the course of their life they've been a good person is something that the judge will take into account at sentencing um and if that's an, you know if that's a consideration in this particular case then i'm sure the judge will do it if we get to that point we've got a lot of steps to go here first have to get a conviction if there is one if there is one we have to determine we have to prove what motivated it uh, we won't get to sentencing unless we get over those two steps and so we'll go through the process in which i completely respect the defendant has the right is presumed innocent and has the right to proceed to trial which is happening here and if we reach that point uh, then we'll address it Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the explanation, and keep up the good work. Thank, Thank you, sir. All right. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, you know, speaking of, of good work, um, when you became attorney general, you had the um, uh, experience of being the U.S. attorney. I think it was President, I don't think, I know it was President Obama of 2009, uh, put you in as a uh, U.S. attorney. And obviously changes with the change of administration. But now with another change of administration, there's uh, somebody who wants to have that position who you think very highly of. Yeah, so uh, um, President Biden will make the selection subject to the um, uh, confirmation by the, by the U.S. Congress. But tradition is in Rhode Island and elsewhere that uh, the United States senators, particularly the senior United States senator, Senator Jack Reed and here in Rhode Island, um, along with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, make a recommendation to the president. That's what happened with me. Senators Whitehouse and Reed uh, recommended me to President Obama, and I was, was incredibly honored by that and, and incredibly honored to be able to serve as Rhode Island's U.S. attorney. Um, so in this particular instance, it's you know, been made public a few weeks ago that uh, the senators have recommended uh, Zachary Cunha to be the next U.S. attorney for the district of Rhode Island. Um, and I think that was a, an inspired and fine uh, recommendation. Yeah, I, I hired Zach Cunha. Um, when I was U.S. attorney, he had been working in the Boston U.S. attorney's office. He went to Brown, 
um, has been lived in Rhode Island with his wife and children for a long time now. A really talented uh, lawyer, um, you know, somebody I really relied on, thought very highly of. Um, he did some great work when I was in the office, really, really changed the way we did some, some cases, uh, brought in kind of new kinds of cases we hadn't been doing before. I think he'll be a great leader of that office. He's a fine attorney and a fine person. Um, I hope that President Biden will, uh, will nominate him to the Congress and the Congress will confirm him. I suspect that they, those things will happen because I can't see why they wouldn't. And I think he'll do a great job and, and I'm really looking forward to working with him because the offices really do collaborate and, mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, can really achieve, um, great things if they are working collaboratively. They have different strengths. You know, the AG's office is a high volume, often uh, dealing with mostly violent crime. U.S. Attorney's office can be more selective, far fewer cases, um, but can do the kinds of cases over time uh, that can really make a positive impact. And when we're doing those cases collaboratively and recognizing our respective strengths um, and how they're different, um, I think we can really do a lot of great work for the people of the state. There's probably no better example of you guys working together, the U.S. Attorney's Office and AG, on the Gordon Fox case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right, Chris. Yeah. So, you know, there was a case that started in the federal system and uh, when I was U.S. Attorney. Um, and, um, you know, we executed a search warrant at then-Speaker Fox's home and recovered some records, uh, established um, campaign finance violations where, you know, uh, Speaker Fox was stealing from his campaign account to support his personal lifestyle. Personal lifestyle. Um, uh, after the execution of the search warrant, uh, we uncovered, uncovered additional evidence that he had taken a bribe. Now, under the federal statute of limitations, we couldn't bring that bribery case because our statute had expired. It was a three-year statute. Mm-hmm. State has a 10-year statute. They can go forward 10 years after the crime. As federal prosecutors, we can only go forward three years after the crime. We really wanted to hold Speaker Fox accountable for taking that bribe. It's really important that we do that. We did that. We were only going to be able to do that if, if we could get the Attorney General's office uh, to work with us on that case. And they did. You know, Attorney General Co. Martin stepped up, joined the team. Um, and we were able to reach um, reach a con- uh, resolution that um, in which uh, Speaker Fox uh, uh, took responsibility, went to prison f- for several years, um, reached a really good outcome in that case, set a, set a good message, I think, to the people of the state that the offices working collaboratively will take on some of the toughest cases and the cases that really impact Rhode Islanders very significantly. If Rhode Islanders can't have faith and confidence in their public officials to be working for them, and not themselves. And whenever a public official takes a bribe or steals from their campaign account, right, because that's a soft form of corruption, right? If you're stealing from your campaign account, you're relying on donors to fund your lifestyle. You're going to owe a debt to those uh, to those uh, those folks who give you campaign donations. And how is that going to affect your decision making? You can only work for the people of the state when you're not doing that. The people of the state suffer. Mr. Attorney General, um, a nuts and bolts issue. Phone call. This is National Grid. We're turning your power off in 30 minutes. Phone call. This is Citizens Bank calling. Your con- your account has been compromised. Hello, this is Amazon. Your order has been shipped. Uh, if there's anything that is appealing to your constituency out there, it's uh, consumer fraud. Totally. Some of them are so sophisticated, I'm, I'm getting sucked in sometimes. I don't know when I'm finally going to be uh, caught in. Do you have much activity in your office on this? Yeah, look, we do. One of the, and Roger, I've been caught up on those things, too. It's na- the national grid one is all of the things you're mentioning are scams. <laughs> look, if anybody is calling you up and saying bad things are going to happen, hang up the phone. If you're really worried, pull out, if you have a credit card, pull out your credit card and call the number in the back of the card. You've got your national grid bill. Pull out your national grid bill and call national grid. Don't do anything when they call you. They're not going to call you for things like that. So if you get that call... 
I know what I do. I simply hang it up. We'll get to what we can do about it in a minute or can't do about it. But if you get those calls, something bad's about to happen. You need to do something right now. Hang the phone up. If you're still worried, I wouldn't be, but if you are, again, if it's somebody you do business with, Citizens Bank, National Grid, you name it, take out your bill, call the number that's on your bill. If you've got a credit card, take out your card, call the number at the back of the card. Do it that way. What you're going to find is there's no issue at all. Next question, next issue, what can we do about it? Very little. Here's why. The people that are doing this aren't in the state of Rhode Island. They're not in the United States. They're offshore, and they're, they're impossible to reach. That was true when I was U.S. attorney, where we had you know national and international reach. And as AG in Rhode Island, where my reach is within the four corners of the state of Rhode Island, it is impossible to reach these individuals. So we spend most of our time doing two things, warning the public about it, and, and this is really important, if you have been... Uh, if you and look, it can easily happen. I've had I've had friends who have fallen into the same trap. Um, if it happens to you and you feel like you did turn over information that you shouldn't have, I'd encourage your listeners to call our consumer protection unit. It's two seven four 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 zero zero. It's prompt one, and they will first of all they'll tell you whether you should be warned or not, and then they'll tell you what steps you can take to limit the damage. Here's another thing, as long as we're on the Consumer Protection Unit. i got to tell you something. Our Consumer Protection Unit is top-notch. They will help you, um, free of charge, obviously. We are a public service, after all. We will help you um, get economic justice. If you've got a charge on your utility bill that doesn't belong there, your phone bill, if, you're, if you've got a leased car and you're not being treated well the right way when you're trying to return it, um, if you've bought an appliance that's not working, whether it's $100, $5, a travel agency, $5,000, call our Consumer Protection Unit. I can't tell you how many people we help in the course of a month. We get 600 calls a month at that unit. They are great, and they will help you. Veterans Day, I was at the uh, Veterans Cemetery in Exeter, and we were all there to uh, acknowledge the sacrifices of our veterans. I said a few words. Afterwards, a veteran approached me, um, and he said, look, I really want to thank you. He said, your Consumer Protection Unit, Allison, uh, helped me get $145 back. It may not seem like a lot of money, but it was a lot of money to me. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how good that made me feel that our office, Allison O'Brien is her name, was able to help this veteran get $145 that he was entitled to that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. That's what we do, and I think your listeners should know that, and I would encourage them to call this while we're there. Any uh, update around the convention center as far as the request for records? Yeah, look, you know, that's an interesting case. You know, the, it was, it's interesting, right? Uh, for your listeners, that was, an ins- that was a situation where the, uh, the convention center basically farms out all of its operations to a private company. And so when there was a, the Providence Journal, I think, put in a public records request for some information about the employees or salaries who worked there, et cetera. The initial position or the position taken by the convention center was, well, look, you know, we can't turn that over. It's not our stuff. It's the private companies. The private company says, well, we're not turning it over. We're a private company. Our, our decision was, look, when you have effectively farmed out all of your operations, which is what happened here. I think the convention center has like three employees and there's like 2,000. I'm rounding up, but you, you take my point. Then you are effectively turning yourself as a private entity into the public entity and you got to turn that information over. That's really important for the citizens, residents, uh, media, uh, interested parties to understand what's going on in their government. And we can't, and, I, and frankly, as Attorney General, I'm not going to allow this kind of situation to take place where you can hide stuff behind the curtain by taking a public agency and trying to turn it into a private one. Uh, there's a really important principle there. 
um, you know, it didn't quite get the attention maybe that it should have. But I think the takeaway for the public is, is that we are really interested here in, in my office now in making sure that the public has access to the information they're entitled to. And look, we take that position uh, to heart internally. When you're coming to look for information from my office, you're going to get it unless I have a good reason not to give it to you. Uh, one area, or one issue that did get a lot of attention is the fire in the speaker's office. Mm-hmm. Any any thoughts on that? You know, I don't. I mean, I know the fire marshals. I mean, we obviously have worked with Warwick Police, State Police, and the fire marshal uh, on that on that issue, as we would with any suspicious fire. Um, you know, the fire marshal has has uh, has not been able to identify. Uh, I believe even even the direct uh, direct causes. Um, certainly, that investigation will continue if, if uh, there are if there's news to share. We certainly will do that. Um, Very dangerous thing, arson. Yeah. You know, it's it's a capital offense in Rhode Island, and meaning it can you can get a life sentence for arson because the danger is you know to 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 individuals is so uh, is so high. I mean, you know, I guess that's obvious in some ways. But you know, you hear about homicide and, and sexual assault and child molestation and uh, arson. Sometimes on our list of capital offenses gets gets forgotten. But when you set a fire. You don't know who you're going to impact. You don't know what loss of life may may develop, and that's why that's a crime that we take very seriously and are keeping a close eye on. That obviously, looks like arson. Is that how the approach is? Well, I think the fire. I think the cause of the fire is unknown, and I think whenever that's true, whenever you can't really, conc- whenever you can't conclude what the cause of the fire is, you at least have to have that on have that down as a possibility. As, as we wrap up, um, crime stats. You've hmm. been at this for a long time. Uh, Crime gets so much attention on the you know twenty four seven. Is it do the do the stats bear out that it's worse now than it was in nineteen ninety and two thousand? You know, Chris. You know, I haven't studied it. You know, as a, as an academic might. You know, but you're right. I've been doing this since nineteen ninety six. My my anecdotal instincts tell me that hasn't changed all that much. I, you know, I wish. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there've been some ups and downs. You know, I look at our our um, charging felony charging in the state of Rhode Island. All felony cases, it's significantly up. But that's because we had a bad Backlog of cases when I took office, mm-hmm. and we had to get into the system. So if Hundreds. you were just you know, thousands, but if you oh. <laughs> just counting, uh, but uh, you know about sixteen hundred, a number that I will never forget. Trust me, because it kept me up at night for a long time. But if you adjust for that blip in that one particular year, where we, I think we went up to to nearly, um, I think we were well over. 6,000 cases, maybe 8,000 cases that year. On, a, on average, we're charging between four and 6,000 cases per year, and that's held pretty steady over the last decade. There's that one blip from that backlog. So, at least in Rhode Island, I don't see a huge, a huge change now. Whether there have been changes in the types of crime, um, I can't really say, you know, because I haven't studied that yet. We, one thing we don't do well uh, in our state system is tracked data very well. I'll, I'll go back, you know, and I'll ask folks, well, how many high-capacity magazines have we seized in the last two years? We don't track that. You know, how many cases have we had involving firearms over the last two or three years? It's hard to track that. You know, so it's hard for me to really get into that numbers. I'm trying to improve that in the office so we can make better decisions, policy and otherwise, about, about what we're trying to do. But we don't track data very well. When I was U.S. Attorney, I could tell you not only how many firearms cases we had, but what kinds of fire, firearms cases we had. Was the gun discharged? Was it brandished? Was it merely possessed? We don't do that well in the state, and that's a real limit, limitation for us. You bring me to my last question as we run out of time. Rhode Island's got the seven strongest gun laws in the country. Mm. Do we need more, or we also, we just need to enforce the ones we have? I think we need to do both. I think we need to enforce the ones we have, and I think we need to take some common sense additional steps to make us safer collectively. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's, uh, I didn't remember what kind of coffee or tea you had, so it's been, <laughs> it's, been, it's been too long since you've been here. But hopefully you can uh, join us again very soon. I'd love to do that. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. See you tomorrow on the Upfront program. This has been WNRI's Upfront. 
presented weekday mornings at 8 a.m. Up front is a regular public affairs presentation of News Talk 1380, WNRI Woonsocket.